Welcome to our worship from Seal Church, led by me, Canon Anne Labar. The hymn which ends the service is sung by the choristers of St Martin in the Fields. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And so we make our confession to God and hear his words of forgiveness. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, to be our advocate in heaven and to bring us to eternal life. We say together, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, Forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may serve you in newness of life, to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty Father, whose will is to restore all things in your beloved Son, the King of all, govern the hearts and minds of those in authority and bring the families of the nations, divided and torn apart by the ravages of sin, to be subject to his just and gentle rule, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The first reading is from Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into ploughshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk in each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God for ever and ever. The second reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning at verse 9. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands, so that you may love one another. In the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. For my birthday this year, Philip gave me a year's membership of the Westminster Abbey Association for us both. That's meant that we can potter in and out of the Abbey as often as we like, short-circuiting the enormous queues and not having to pay the rather steep entrance fees every time either. It's been great because there's a lot to see in the Abbey and in particular a huge number of memorials. If I'm honest, Westminster Abbey is a bit of a mausoleum. It's so full of tombs of the dead, they threaten to crowd out the living. There are kings and queens, and poets and musicians and scientists too. Handel and Tennyson and Stephen Hawking. There are generals and admirals, earls and dukes, all of them trying to outdo one another in death with their spectacular monuments, just as they probably did in life. But in the midst of them all is one gravestone, a simple one in design, which draws far more attention than all those ornate memorials. It's near the entrance to the abbey, right in the middle of the aisle, a thoroughly inconvenient place. But that's intentional. It's meant to stop people in their tracks, force them to alter their path. It's the only grave that's never walked over even by royal wedding or funeral processions. If you haven't guessed, it's the tomb of the unknown warrior, a plain black marble slab surrounded by flowers and inscribed with these words. Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land. The inscription finishes with some words from the Old Testament. They buried him among the kings because he had done good toward God and toward his house. The stone is surrounded by other biblical quotations too. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Unknown and yet well known, dying and behold we live. In Christ shall all be made alive. And from the Gospel reading we've just heard, greater love hath no man than this, which, as you may know, continues than to lay down his life for his friends. It's an extraordinary memorial, 
not in its design or its wording, but in the fact that it's there at all. And it's that which I think makes the huge crowds of sightseers pause and be silent around it. There's something special, something holy about this memorial, and people sense that. We owe its existence to one man, an army chaplain called David Railton. In 1916, while serving on the front line in France, he'd noticed one evening a rough wooden cross, marking one of the many graves dug in haste to inter those who'd fallen. On it was written in pencil, an unknown British soldier of the Black Watch. It was common for bodies to be buried hastily like this as the battle swept on. There was no time to do anything more. Railton, who was Scottish, said that as he looked at this simple grave of an unknown member of a Scottish regiment, he wondered who he was. A city boy from Edinburgh? Or a shepherd from some highland glen? A young lad, newly enlisted? Or an old soldier who'd seen many battles before? There was no way of knowing, but the seed of an idea lodged in Railton's mind that somehow an anonymous soldier like this one could stand in for all the others who'd never be identified and named, so that families who didn't know where their loved one was buried could still have somewhere to mourn. Railton couldn't do anything about it at the time. In 1916, the fighting was still too fierce, and the outcome of the war too uncertain to make plans. But when the war ended and plans for commemoration were underway, he remembered his idea, and he decided to write to the Dean of Westminster Abbey. He had very little hope that anything would come of it. It was the summer of 1920, and on Armistice Day that year the Cenotaph in Whitehall would be unveiled, so there was very little time to act if he was going to add anything else to that commemoration. And anyway, who was he? just an ordinary chaplain, who'd become an equally ordinary parish priest. He was vicar of a church in Margate. To his surprise, though, the dean wholeheartedly took up his cause and wrote to the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George. He was equally supportive. The king was initially a bit reluctant, but swiftly came round, and after that everything moved very fast. On November the 8th, four unidentified bodies were exhumed at random from various battlefields in northern France. No one knew where each had come from. They were laid in plain coffins and brought to a chapel nearby, where an army officer with eyes closed laid his hands on one of them. The other three were taken away again and reverently buried. Exactly where was deliberately shrouded in mystery, so no one would know that these were the bodies that hadn't been chosen. But then the body that was, was brought back to England by train, and after a full state funeral, the kind of funeral that was normally reserved for royalty, he was laid to rest. And there he remains. Of course, these days, a quick DNA test could probably reveal who he was. But no one's ever suggested that this should happen, and I'm quite sure it won't. The whole point is, of course, 
that this warrior is unknown and remains so. He has to be unknown so that any grieving mother, child, wife or friend who comes to this grave could feel he might be the person that they'd lost, the person they had known, a unique and irreplaceable individual to them. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, said Jesus to his disciples on the night before he died. He wasn't, of course, talking about those who die in battle, but about his own crucifixion, which was motivated by his love for the people he came to help and to serve. Individual people, people like you and me. It wasn't motivated by some grand theological idea. His words are often quoted in the context of war, though, because they remind us that in war, too, it's individuals who matter, individuals who pay the price, individuals who bring home to us the truth of war's terrible cost. If we lose sight of individuals, we have lost sight of all humanity. One unnamed serviceman buried in Westminster Abbey represents that to us. But I think today we can also see it in the faces of those we see on the news, the ones we want to turn away from but mustn't. The parent grieving for a child killed by a bomb in Gaza. The children grieving for a mother killed by Hamas. The family who don't know whether their loved one in Ukraine is alive or dead. The ones who, like all of us, just want to live in peace, everyone beneath their vine and fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, as the prophet Micah said. Whichever side they're on, if they're on any side at all, they are individuals to those who love them and to God, people made in his image, who were meant to live and to thrive and to be a blessing to the world. Today, as on every Remembrance Sunday, we are called to remember not just the grand and terrible events of history, but the individuals whom war destroys in body, mind and soul. And to remember too that we, as individuals, have the power to choose whether we'll act in ways that lead to war or to the peace God wants for all his children. Amen. And so as we bring our prayers to God, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.